Well, this morning, you may have noticed that the theme of the service is Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving is not a Christian holiday per se. I think most of us are aware of the origins of where it came from. There's nothing particularly and distinctively Christian about it. Others can give thanks. Others can live in thankfulness. And yet, it is a Christian, and it is a uniquely Christian thing that we are able to do to fully give thanks. Don't we as a Christian people have a particular ability to give thanks? Don't we have a particular need to do so? As we look at the resurrection, as we are preparing our hearts just next week to celebrate Advent, to celebrate the coming, the humbling of our Lord to become human to live a perfect life, to die on a cross. And so we could skip over this holiday and not mark it. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us we must celebrate Thanksgiving. In fact, we are commanded only one holiday to celebrate, and that is the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. On Thursdays, you give thanks. We give thanks knowing that Sunday is the day that we have been given, particularly as the Lord's blessing. But this week we have an opportunity as we gather with maybe family and friends to look back and to remember, to give thanks for the great things that the Lord has done in our lives, in history, in creation, and the great things that we know that he is going about, the great things that he is doing. And so let us read together one of the great psalms of thanksgiving, Psalm 30. It's found in your bulletin or if you would like to open in your Bible. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, some of us in a a time of great joy, and some of us in times of 
sadness and grief, pain, um, as we seek to learn from your word, as we seek to hear it, to hear it well, to hear it with open ears and eyes and hearts. Lord, we know that we need your spirit moving within us. Without that power, without your spirit, we can do nothing. And yet we thank you that you have been pleased to send him to us, a helper. We pray this morning that as you have promised, the word would be good for us, good for teaching, for correction, for reproof, that it would be a blessing to us, that we'd be encouraged by it, knowing that you have given us all good things in Christ. And so we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the beginning of this psalm, actually we haven't read yet, Maybe you've noticed at the beginning of many of the psalms in the Bible, at the very top, there is a short inscription either saying who it's by, um, the situation of what it was, why it was written. Um, some of them have markings that we think are what kind of song it was to be sung to, or liturgical instructions. If you have seen the words mass kill, we think that that might be some sort of musical setting. At least that's one interpretation. So at the beginning of this psalm, it says, A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now this may be accurate, um, but it's an interpretation of what's actually in the original text. The original text is somewhat ambiguous, but the word used is it's a song of, at the dedication of the house. Now this could be as it's translated here, could be the temple, the house of God. In this case, the psalm wouldn't actually have been written at the building of the temple or the dedication of the temple, as we know David didn't live to see that. He asked God, he pled with God, Lord, will you you let me build your temple? He said, how is it that I live in a house of cedar and the Lord dwells in a tent? But by his wisdom, the Lord instead said, it will not be you, it will be your son who builds my temple. But the thing that David was allowed to do was he was allowed to build an altar on the location that the temple would come, at the threshing floor of a man named Arauna. He built a temple, or not a temple, he built an altar and gave praise to God there, and not long after that, his son Solomon, at that site, built the temple. So it could be that that is what is being referred to here. It's a song that was sung when David bought that land. Or it could be David's house himself, that house of cedar that he built when he came and conquered Jerusalem. If you remember, when David became king, Jerusalem was not the capital. It was not even in Israelite hands. It was held by the Jebusites, a neighboring people. And he had to go in and actually conquer that place so that that could be the capital. That could be the place of his own house. So either way, you take the opening inscription of this psalm. What's clear is that it was a psalm written at a moment of great culmination in David's life, a moment where the streams of what had been happening had finally come to a level of completion. He takes it as a moment to look back at his life, to take stock of what's led up to where he is right now. He remembers what God has done for him, first of all. 
verses 1 to 3. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me, O Lord. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. His very first statement as he looks back, I will extol you, O Lord. I will praise you. I will lift you up. I will tell of your greatness. I will rejoice. I will extol you. Why? Because you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Now David extols God's care for him in three areas of his life. Deliverance from enemies, deliverance from sickness, and ultimately deliverance from sins. Throughout David's life, he was pursued and oppressed by a number of powerful enemies. You may remember the story of David and Goliath, the Philistines who he for years did battle with. But the Lord delivered him from those enemies. You may remember Saul, the king, the one who David played the harp for, the one whom he devoted himself to. Even when the king had, had challenged him, had thrown a spear at David, he refused to turn against him. He refused to be embittered against him. And the Lord delivered him. You may remember, as we have just said, the Jebusites, the ones who had held Jerusalem, that David made war against them and conquered them. The Lord did not allow them to have victory. And later in his life, even his son Absalom, maybe the most painful moment of David's life when his own son turned against him, took the throne and David went into hiding. So David gives thanks, not for the strength of his own arm, but for the power of his God who has not let his foes rejoice over him. He rejoices and he extols God's sick, uh, deliverance from sickness. He says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. Not just saved me, you have healed me. There are some places in the Psalms that make us think Perhaps that there was a physical ailment, a physical sickness that David was going through. He speaks of um, being in pain, of his bones wasting away, of his strength failing. This may be entirely figurative, or it may be that he really had some illness. He was afflicted in a physical way, and yet, he says, the Lord did not allow him to stay there, but drew him up. He protected him. And finally, from his sins, as we will see later in this psalm, the Lord delivered him. Most notably, we think of the sin with Bathsheba, where he had his own best friend, his own commander, killed Uriah at the front lines of battle, and he took his wife, whom he had lusted after, and, and he slept with her and paid the penalty for it. Or we could think of at the end of his life, the census. He sinfully, we are told, counted all of the military men who were in the armies, not to show the glory of God who had grown this nation so much, but to show his own glory, the strength that his nation had built, the strength of his own arm at this point. And because of that census, the Lord sent a plague on the people and 70,000 of them died. And only at the end of that, did it remit because David built that altar and, and praised the Lord. And so David sings of the Lord's deliverance 
at this moment of looking back, whether at the building of his own house or at the building of the altar at the floor of Arauna. And all these afflictions tell, not of life's hardships, but of the Lord's goodness. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. The word here is usually trans, translated grave. Sheol, grave, the place where you would bury someone, the place where the dead go. And yet the word, you have brought me up, maybe is more accurately translated, you have drawn me up. The word is usually used for a well. that so You would send down a bucket and you would draw up the water. And so the image here is of David deep in a well, deep in a pit, with no hope of climbing out, with only being able to look up and see the degree from which he has fallen, the place of utter hopelessness, and yet to see a rope thrown in, a bucket drawn up to remove David from that situation. Lord, you have drawn me up. Even from the doors of death, even from Sheol, you have drawn me up. You have rescued me, he says. And so, sing praises to the Lord. Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's not just a truism. It's not something that you just put on a Hallmark card, on a nice pillow at home. You notice that it comes after verses 1 to 3. It has a location in the psalm. David does not start with this, but he shows the Lord has drawn me up. He has rescued me. He has delivered me. And so I can say, I can say truly, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. He has seen persecution, murder attempts, wars, the loss of a child, sicknesses, his own shortcomings. And he has seen over and over that sorrow does not dwell more than the night, but it leaves in the morning and joy comes. Weeping may tarry for the night like an unwanted visitor. This may be the right time of year to use this illustration. There may be a time that you think, it's time to go, buddy. <laughs> I love you, but you've, you've had your stay. And in the same way, David looks at mourning. He looks at this lack of peace, this grief that he had. And by God's grace, it doesn't last. But it leaves in the morning and is followed by another visitor, Joy, who stays and lasts. God's anger may last for the moment, but his favor is forever. And how much do we have to say this? How truly can we say this who know not only God's goodness, but Christ's sacrifice. Though weeping may hang around for the evening, Christ has won the victory, and joy comes with the morning. Whether it be tomorrow morning or the morning we wake in glory, we can truly say with David, more than he even knew at that time, morning will not last, but joy comes with the morning. Death has lost its sting, the grave has lost its victory, and joy comes with the morning. Now in the middle of this psalm, David takes a turn, and he reminds us that giving thanks means giving up autonomy. It means giving up the thought that we have earned or can control what is going on in our lives. 
In verse 6, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. There were good times. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David is confessing that although he can sing of the joy that he has, the peace and the prosperity that he has, he has to acknowledge that the story which led to it was marked by his pride, but God's sovereignty. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And before we judge David too much for his pride, how many of us have forgotten in our prosperity the need that we had for God when he provided that prosperity for us? How easy is it when God has bountifully provided for us when our bank accounts are full, when our stomachs are full as they are about to be, when our garages are full, when our houses are full? To forget that we still need to pray as we were commanded and as we just prayed, Lord, give me today my daily bread. That's not a prayer that you pray and then have fulfilled. That is a daily prayer. In that moment, like David, we begin to see ourselves as great mountains, unshakable, unmovable, unassailable. And yet how many of us, like David, have seen the Lord tear down our security at just the right time and made us realize our reliance on him? By grace, it seems like we never go too long without that moment. It doesn't feel like grace, certainly, at the time that it happens. But some difficulty, some sickness, some calamity will come into our lives and make us remember, Lord, I need you to give me my daily bread. This last week, I've been celebrating the completion of seminary. Uh, I'm now pursuing the studies and the tests uh, to take for licensure and ordination And throughout that seminary period, uh, there were just about every year, there was a point that we would look, Sarah and I, at our bank account and see a number with only two digits <laughs> um, or one digit. And those are moments that you realize in a very real way Lord, give me my daily bread, because if this car has one issue, if I have a flat tire, there's going to be something, I'm going to be walking the 30 miles to seminary. That's not a good plan. And only afterwards, only after a time and time again God would provide through one means or another, do you look back and realize the grace by which he is operating, the grace that says, I will not allow you to forget your need for me because your need for me goes deeper than you understand it to go. Maybe a job that once seemed certain for you has slipped through your fingers. Maybe a company was sold and you lost the income you thought you were going to have. Maybe the parenting strategies that you thought were foolproof failed to produce the kind of children that you were hoping for. Maybe you've had a child go astray. Maybe you've had that moment where you looked at your bank account and you saw one digit and it was in the red. But eventually we're brought back to this place from which David writes, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. He's almost bargaining with God. Wouldn't it be a shame if I died, God? Don't you need me? Wouldn't it be a shame for the kingdom 
if it seemed like your promise hadn't been kept? Wouldn't it be a shame if I didn't get to lead your people in worship, if I didn't get to lead them into the blessing that you have promised them? And of course, he would be disappointed, I think, hearing Jesus' response to a similar, uh, similar question when it was posed to him in Luke 19. When his disciples were praising him, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Worshiping Jesus. And then the Pharisees heard this and they told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for saying such things. What did he say? I tell you, if they keep silence, the stones will cry out. And so will the dust praise God in David's absence? Absolutely it will. In the end, after the bargaining, David is left only with the honest statement, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. That's all he has. No bargaining, nothing to earn, nothing to tell God he must do this. Only, Lord, be merciful. There's no reason I can give why you should bless me. Nothing I have that you need. No goodness in me that isn't more bountifully in yourself. But, O Lord, be merciful to me. And as we have seen, even in the beginning of this psalm, he leaves no doubt. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. He prays not to a God who wishes his destruction, but to a God who wishes to bring him back, to draw him up, to lead him back into humility and faithfulness and love. And so finally, we see David return in prayer and praise and thanksgiving. There's a pattern to David's thankfulness. We see he remembers God's goodness, he remembers his own need, and finally he rejoices and gives thanks. Verses 11 to 12, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I know that God has done great things for me. I know that I haven't earned his grace towards me. And so, he says, I will rejoice. I will give him thanks. The Apostle Paul follows the same pattern. In Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Know your reliance on the Lord, he's saying. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you rejoice in what God has done. You admit your need to him, your need for him, and give thanks for the grace he has given. And if we are in Christ, we are called to follow David, we're called to follow Paul in this pattern of thanksgiving. Recently, Sarah and I have, um, have changed the way that we do family devotionals and we've started praying. We realized that we had been praying about one thing per night and usually that one thing was whatever the pressing thing on our heart was and so it was the same most days. I would say, Lord... I'm ready to be done with school. Please help me to get through this. And then the next day I would say, I'm still not done. Let's pray it again. And that's a good thing, right? We can come to the Lord. He doesn't get bored with our prayer requests. And yet we said we need to maybe broaden this out. And so we agreed that we would pray one thing for ourselves, one thing 
for others, and one thing that we're thankful for. I realized very quickly that it was astoundingly difficult for me to find things I was thankful for. How is this the case? How is it with all of these things I know that God has blessed me, that I know that things, even comparatively just in this world, are going pretty well for me right now, that I have a job, I have a home, I have food, and yet it makes you notice that the pattern of our lives often is not to give thanks, but to focus on the things that we don't have. To focus on our needs rather than on the ways God has so abundantly and wondrously given us everything. It's a helpful practice for us to actively bring to mind and pray for those things that we're thankful for. Maybe you have had a prayer journal and you can look back and say, Lord, I prayed for this three years ago. For this job, for the salvation of this person for the restoration of this relationship, and I have seen that come to pass or seen something greater or seen the Lord working in this way. We live in a culture, particularly, I think, in Dallas, of keeping up with the Joneses. This is a time of year that we finally get to take a step back and think, is this reasonable? Is this a Christian way to live? Is this the way that I should be spending my time? As I say that, I'm convicted of the amount of time that I have spent looking for the best Black Friday deals and the best, cheapest ways I can find things. And yet we should pay more attention to what we lack, than more attention to what we have, the amazing things that we've been given, not just on this earth, but ultimately the things that we have in Christ than the things that we lack. I don't say this to make you feel guilty. Probably everyone in this room can relate somewhat, I hope, or either that or you're a very much better Christian than I am. But probably we have all had that thought of, of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, of what, just focusing on that thing that we don't have, that we feel like we need. And I don't say this to make you feel bad. I say this not because there's a rule that we have to give thanks but because if we're not giving thanks, it means that our eyes are not fixed firmly enough on the one that we give thanks for. I want to do something a little bit unusual to end this sermon. I want all of us to read together verses 11 to 12. You may be in the midst of the most joyful part of your life, right? You may have, maybe you just got married and everything is great, or you just got the job you've been praying for for years, if that's the case, we can pray these last two verses, giving thanks for what we have and yet knowing that those things are only in our lives to point forward to the greater blessing that is to come. Knowing that these things will fall away, must, rust will destroy them, moths will eat them, thieves will break in and steal, as the gospel says. And yet we can thank God for them in a real way, knowing that they point to that which is greater. Or maybe you're in a point in life where Things haven't gone the way you wanted them to go this year. Maybe you've lost that job that you had hoped for. Maybe you have lost a loved one. Maybe at the Thanksgiving table this year there will be a spot missing. And if that's the case, if you're in the midst of pain and despair, you can look to Christ and know that God has not allowed sin and death to triumph. That although weeping may tarry for the night, 
yet joy comes in the morning. If you're living your best life, that is great, and you can let that point forward to Christ. And if you are living a life that barely feels worth living, you can look to Christ and know that he has even now blessed you with blessings that you can't comprehend, blessings that we haven't even understood the fullness of. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth that my glory may sing your praise. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let this be the cry of our hearts, not out of a sense of legalism, not out of a sense of, oh, I feel bad that I haven't given thanks enough this year. That's a new thing I need to start doing. No. Our goal at Thanksgiving is to more firmly fix our eyes on the one that we have to be thankful for. Don't take it with guilt. Don't take it as a feeling of, oh, I should have been doing that. Take it as a, what a glory it is to take a look one more time at this Savior who has been given to us, this amazing grace that has been laid out before us. And if you are someone who has not yet taken hold of that grace this morning, I want you to pray this, these last two verses with me, tasting them on your tongue, knowing the grace that is laid out before you. And I would pray that you would receive these, receive this promise that Joy comes in the morning for those who know Christ, who are in Christ, and who have received his promises. And so let's read these last two verses together. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever.